right. Good morning, everybody. How are you guys doing? Pastor Gabe cut into my time by about uh, 12 minutes, so trust me, I'll get it back. <laughs> Glad you guys are here. Hey, uh, on that one thing, Pastor Gabe, I know the announcements are, are sometimes we tend to, to uh, I don't know, kind of tune them out sometimes, not necessarily on purpose, but it just happens. Um, Clear Spring Pharmacy is, for those of you who don't know, they're a retail pharmacy, and they're right at the at the end of this circle right here. You could, they're just the next building over, um, and uh, it was so generous of them to big bring this big stack. Number one, just to think of us, and then to bring that and just drop them off for us. So that's huge. So let's do them a favor. If you need anything, just just check them out. Um, all right, let's get into the message right here. It, we are in. Um, series. It's called Blameless, a study in the life of Job. Now, if you haven't been here for a while, or maybe you're out there online, it's your first time, or maybe you've checked out one here and there, go back into the video archives through either Facebook or YouTube or on our website. You can go into the dedicated web player that we have um, and check out some of the previous messages. It's important whether you listen to them all or not, listen to the first few. Because in the first few, especially in the book of Job, for those of you who don't know, in the book of Job, it lays out really everything you need to know behind the scenes of what's happening in order to help make sense. If you just look at one chapter in isolation, say we're in chapter 18 today. So if you just look at chapter 18 in isolation, it'd be real easy to get the wrong impression of what the entire book of Job is about. So I want you to go back, just encourage you to go back and check those out if you haven't. But I will never just leave you hanging. So I'm going to do just kind of a quick overview, make sure that we're all kind of on the same page of what's happening here. So where we ended up last week, and I'll kind of go back to the beginning here in just a minute. But where we ended up last week was Job's friends, three friends, Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar, had heard of this terrible trial that Job was going through. And again, for those of you who don't know, Job had an upright guy. God himself, in the opening chapters, declared Job is blameless. And essentially, God just gave him his stamp of approval. This is my guy. This is a good guy. And yet, then there's this challenge with Satan that I'll talk about more in a minute here. But bad things happen to Job, and he basically loses everything that he's got. His friends, these three well-meaning friends, come from afar, and they come to comfort him. Now, it's easy based on if we were to just read, say, this chapter again in isolation, you would think, man, his friends are jerks. Why did they even come there? But I think we're going to find out, at least as we go through the message today, that there was some other reason for them to be acting the way that they are. So, Last week, where we left off, essentially, is these friends are lining up one by one to berate Job and trying to get him to admit or to fess up to some sort of, of sinful crime that he had committed, um, and they have to. They have to get him to admit to something, otherwise they've got to risk thinking that maybe the way they're looking at everything is wrong. Nobody wants to do that, not the least of which any of his friends want to do that. So the, the alternative to looking at themselves is to prove that he did something wrong. 
And so they need to get him to come clean and fess up. And so they just line up one by one to take their swings at him and try and get him to, to break down and just go, okay, anybody ever seen the, the detective shows where people carefully plot this crime, they do all this, they've got all, all the bases covered, and then the minute they sit in front of this handsome detective who says, admit it, you did it, and they go, all right, I admit it. And they, and they come clean on every detail of the crime, right? I'm pretty sure that it never happens that way in reality. But that's what Job's friends are, are they're after here. They're just going to beat him up and hammer him, hammer him, hammer him, until he finally says, okay, okay, I'm going to admit except that there's nothing there. So in the midst of all this, Job, Job he's, he's getting beat up by, by those who he thinks are going to comfort him. And his resolve is kind of wavering back and forth. One minute he's good, the other minute he's not so sure. Next minute he's good again. And in the midst of all that, last week, he's hurting, he's confused, he's not sure who he can count on, and, and he takes time in the middle of all this, to just pause, take a deep breath, and just praise God for how good he is. And this is what he said. This is from last week. I'll just read it to you. Job chapter 16, verse 19. Job says, even now, behold, my witness is in heaven, and my advocate is on high. Now think about this in context a little bit. Job didn't know any of that. We have the benefit of thousands of years of, of hindsight, of the Holy Spirit in us, of Scripture, to know that his advocate and his witness in Jesus is there for him, but he doesn't know that. He's got no context to even understand that, and yet he gives this great declaration of faith. Basically, he's saying, I don't know how it works. I don't know how it's going to happen, but I know that God is good, and therefore he has to have made a way. There has to be somebody to plead my case. And it's a beautiful statement given the fact he's got no way, like we do again, to know this, and his friends are beating him up, and in the midst of all that, he's clinging to this. I know God's good, and I know that he has made a way for me. Now, you and I hear him say that, and we would praise Job for his faith for his steadfastness. We would, go, we would go, good for you. Good for you. That's why you're a hero of the Bible is because you have no way to know this. You just know that God is good and you're going to hang on to that, cling to that no matter what circumstances say. So we'd praise him for that. But his friends, Bildad specifically, who we're going to be talking about today, he doesn't know any of that stuff that we have the benefit of knowing. He doesn't have the benefit of any of that and what he does, he hears Job saying that and just accuses him of being blasphemous. Like, okay, he's saying, you and I both know you have sinned. You and I both know you're being punished by God because of some dark, heinous thing that you have done. And in the middle of that, for you to come out and just say, I know that my advocate is on high and he'll vindicate me, that's kind of blasphemous. And that's the way that Bildad looks at it. He doesn't know any of that, and he flat out refuses, as do his friends, to even look beyond their initial verdict, that first impression. Anybody ever do like I do? And, and I do this all the time, and I'm just going to admit, I'll see a news clip on TV of a, of a suspect or 
uh, I'll meet somebody, and immediately I will make this judgment in my head. Guilty, not guilty, based on the fact, do you see how he smiled when he said that? That looks like guilt to me. Do you see how his collar wasn't buttoned all the way up? That's guilty to me. And once you make that assessment in your in your mind, once you judge that person, guilty, innocent, nice, evil, whatever the judgment is, it's so hard to get past that, isn't it? Because at that point, once I've judged, I, I knew that he was evil because everything that I see then, look, he's even driving an evil person's car. You know, everything that you see reinforces that belief that you've already instilled. And it's so hard to... I use the the term just jerk the wheel and get out of that rut of the way that we are seeing things. This is exactly where Job's friends are. They're they're unable and unwilling to even look at any other possibility. And because of that, Bildad now, he's going to hammer away on what's left of Job's resolve. Now, as I prayed about this message, which I do all the time, we do all kinds of study techniques, and I try and teach you kind of some of them as we go along. The youth are in the middle of a series where they're learning how to really study the Bible, how to go in, and I think that's amazing that they do that. And there's exegetical techniques that I use all the time, and I could talk to you about them, Um, but once you've done all that, the single most important thing we can do to interpret Scripture is to pray about it is to let the Holy Spirit lead us. What is there in this scripture that I need to see? Okay, I know what happened. I know why it happened. I know the story around it. What is there, Lord, that you want to show me? Because it's going to be different possibly for all of us. My job as pastor here is to not only make this scripture come to life and make it understandable, but then find that, that corporate message that God wants us as a church to look at. And I think in this case, as I was praying about this, driving down the street, praying about this last week, and, and God just hit me, um, had to pull over and had to write some stuff down. But the highlight of the influence that the accuser is having on Job's friends. It's easy to look at what happened there and go, Job's friends are just jerks. They come all this way, and, and all they do is just, is just beat him up. They're, they're jerks. Who needs friends like that? But I think it's important to see Job's friends weren't jerks to start with anyway. Some of their attitudes might have been. But Job was a good guy. God declared Job a good guy. Good guys, good businessmen, upright men. They don't hang out in general or have as good friends guys who are not like that. So in general, the assumption would be Job's friends were at least pretty good guys in general, and they probably had a very genuine motive for coming there and seeing their friend. We have to take them at their word that that's really what they came there for, and yet things went south. How did things go south so badly? That's what I think that we need to talk about in context of this, of this scripture. Now, quick note, nowhere in this scripture that we're reading today or in the book of Job really does it indicate that Satan or his demons are directly influencing or speaking through Job's friends. 
We obviously know that behind the scenes, Satan's got this deal with God, and Satan is doing some things to, to um, afflict Job. We know that. It says it. Doesn't say that Satan specifically goes and either influences or talks to or uses Job's friends, but we can see that influence. And by connecting those dots, I think we can kind of paint a picture of what's going on here. So remember, let's go back. <coughs> Excuse me. Why, why Job's friends are there in the first place? Okay, we know we know what's going on. But I want to go back and read you this chunk from it's Job chapter two, verse eleven from one of our earlier messages. I'll just read it to you. Now, when Job's three friends heard about all this adversity that had come upon him, they came, each from his own place, Eliphaz the Temanite, Bildad the Shuite, and Zophar the Namathite, and they made an appointment together to come and sympathize with him and to comfort him. So we don't, we don't read into something like that and go, okay, did they have a different motive? This is what Scripture says. They came to sympathize with him and comfort him. That's good intentions. So we have to take it at face value that they came with good intentions to comfort their friend. Why then did it end up devolving into what we see now, these attacks? So here's, here's where I think we go with this. Satan had physically attacked Job personally, his body, had attacked his family, his children, had attacked his well-being, his livestock, all the things that he owned, and and destroyed all of those things in an effort to get him to renounce God and to curse God. Remember, Satan had said, the only reason Job is a good guy at all is because you give him everything, and the only reason that he loves you is because you take care of him and give him everything. If you take that stuff away, I guarantee he'll curse you. That kind of sets up the whole premise here. And so Satan has done all that he could to take those things away, and yet Job is still hanging on to this shred of resolve and this trust in God that he has. So now, it's time to work on his faith. It's time to work on his heart. It's time to work on his, his character in order to break down this steadfast faith in God that he has. And what better tool to use than Job's own friends? See, I think it happens so many times in life. When Satan comes at you with this frontal assault, this, these obvious things, most of us, can see those things coming. And if not, maybe a friend says, hey, that's the devil. And you go, you know what? You're right. I see that. But Satan's smarter than that. So he might come at you from the front, but he'll also circle around back. He'll also use something that you think you can count on and trust to help you with that. And he'll use that. Satan does those kinds of things all the time. And I think that's what he's doing now here. Job might just let his guard down enough amongst his friends to go ahead and curse God, which is all really that Satan is after. It's all he really cares about. So at that point, then, Satan and his demons can strike. Now, I want to revisit something really quick. Most of us know this scripture, but I just want to throw it out there again for some who don't. 1 Peter 5.8, this is, Paul, this is uh, Peter, he's talking about spiritual warfare. Be of sober spirit, be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. It's a picture. It's a picture of that they would have understood at the time of a, a flock of sheep 
in a pasture and a lion roaring around or, or sneaking around in the dark and in the shadows, just waiting for his time to pounce. But that's what the devil does. The devil prowls around like that, and he's tricky. Oftentimes, if you, if you look at it, and it can be ugly to watch, but a lion will do just that. He will show himself to the herd. The herd will run a certain way while the others are laying in wait. And it's a picture of how Satan tends to work in our lives. Now, and Satan's not alone. He's got plenty of help. In fact, uh, Scripture, Mark 5, 9, talks about how he has legions to assist him. Now, I want to talk about this for just a minute. Who are these legions? These legions are demons. We have Satan and his legions, which are demons. Then we have God, Jesus, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, and their legions, which are angels. If you believe in angels, you have to believe in demons. You can't believe in one and not believe in the other because they are, this, they are one and the same, different sides of the same coin. You have to believe that. And in that, there are specialists in the demonic realm. Now, much like a doctor would specialize, you have specialists in different regions. Now, I'm not equating demons with doctors. Those of you who are doctors or no doctors, not equating those. But it's like that. There are demons who specialize in certain things, and we call those demon spirits of, and they have a name typically. So there are spirits like hatred, fear, witchcraft, lust, pride, sickness, infirmity, false religion, and they go by hundreds of different names. But they do have names. There is a whole genre of study, demonology, where people go in and they really study these things. I don't necessarily recommend that we do that unless that's something God puts on your heart. I've done that. It's a dangerous road to go down. It can lead to fascination with things that we should not be paying that much attention to. But like any enemy, if we're going to defeat the enemy, if we're going to be aware of the enemy, we have to know he exists. And we have to know some of his tricks. So yes, there's hundreds of them. Hundreds of different types of demons with their little subspecialties. Um, and as we look at this chapter this week, we're going to be in Job chapter 18, verses 1 through 21. We're going to do the whole chapter this week. Look for places where the accuser, Satan, is using these guys to maybe twist the truth, maybe twist the truth of God into a dagger that Bildad can use to stab Job in the heart. I think we're going to see where that happens again. It doesn't say that in Scripture, but I think we can see their influence, and I'm going to help you through some of that. Let's get in to uh, chapter 18, Job 18, verses 1 and 2. Then Bildad the Shuhite responded, How long will you hunt for words? Show understanding, and then we can talk. Okay. I want to say, when I read that, the first thing I think is, at least Job is hunting for words rather than to just repeat the company line, rather than to just repeat the talking points you guys have all agreed to, and you're just restating it over and over again in different ways, at least Job is hunting for words. At least he's searching for the right thing to say. These guys aren't doing that. They're, they're, like they're like a broken record. They just keep repeating the same ideas over and over again like they're their own thoughts. None of them are thinking outside the box here. They're all just repeating the same kind of thing. 
And to paraphrase, once you're so understanding and then we can talk, he's essentially saying anyone with half a brain would agree. Have any of you ever fallen into that where you say, anybody with a brain, anybody who bothers to think would agree with me? That's the insinuation, right? If you have half a brain, you'd agree with me. I want to point out that that is clear evidence of a spirit of pride that is at work in Bildad here. It's exactly what a spirit of pride says. Spirit of pride says, you know better. You're smarter, you're quicker, you're faster, you've read more things, you're more educated, you're more woke than the other guy, whatever it is. And if you don't agree with me, then it's clear that you don't have half a brain. That's that spirit of pride. And it really quickly morphs into cynicism. And this idea of cynicism, I'll talk more about it later, it has clouded all their minds so much that they were unwilling and they couldn't even try to see beyond their preconceptions. This notion of what they had, they weren't even willing to look at it. Job 18.3, why are we regarded as animals and as stupid in your eyes? Again, this is Bildad saying this to Job and point out that Job never once called them stupid. What he did say is, yeah, those things you're saying, I know that too. I have a brain like you do, and I know those facts. He never once called them stupid. He did say, you're terrible friends. But this idea, this is a lying spirit. Again, goes by many different names. But what a lying spirit does is it takes truth and it twists it just enough to no longer be truth. We see that same trick that Satan used on Jesus when Jesus was wandering the desert. He was tired, he was hungry, he'd been fasting for a long time, and he was physically at kind of his most vulnerable point. And Satan swoops in and uses Scripture to try and trap Jesus. It's that lying spirit that we see over and over again. Now, another kind of to parse some words here, where it says, as stupid in your eyes. And then up in verses uh, 1 and 2, when it says, how long will you hunt for words? On those right there, and sometimes I'll pull out Greek and Hebrew, that word your and you is only used, it's a Hebrew word is, is what it comes down to, and it's only used in this area right here in Scripture. That's the only time we see that. And it's a special form, and it's plural. You and your. In other words, to explain it, if I said, you have done this to me, okay, I'm pointing at a specific person. It's the same word, you, versus if I say, you all did this, or if I just say, you did this, then I'm indicting the entire group, right, versus just one individual. It's important that we see here that Bildad is not just pointing at Job and saying, you have done this. Are we stupid in your eyes? Um, how long will you hunt for words? Being plural, he's, be, he's basically saying your type of person. In other words, he's saying all of you. How long will all of you, your kind of people, hunt for words and for something to say? And if you, all you, don't agree with what I'm saying, then maybe you're not as smart as you think you are. He's indicting everyone who doesn't line up lockstep with what Bildad, Eliphaz, and Zophar are saying is the truth. It's an important way to look at that. 
Job 18, verse 4. You who tear yourself in your anger, should the earth be abandoned for your sake or the rock removed from its place? Now, this is a common tactic too. It's basically saying if we are willing to look at any possibility that it's not the way we say it is, it's a slippery slope. And so we're not willing to look at that. He's saying here, should the whole earth rearrange its moral structure to fit what you're saying? And then he goes on to say, we're just not even willing to look at that. There's no way. It happens all the time. Everything that they think is true is kind of on trial. If they're willing to budge at all and look at the possibility that there might be other facts they haven't considered, it's a slippery slope. And it could lead to all of a sudden, now we have to look at a whole lot of things that we think we believe and have a reason why. That right there is a religious spirit. A religious spirit is totally inflexible. It's absolutely unwilling to look at any other possibilities, any other interpretations, and it's willing to take down anyone who doesn't agree with them. Now, I'm not saying that a religious spirit would quote Scripture incorrectly. I'm not saying it would, it would preach heresy but a religious spirit would be absolutely inflexible and unwilling to look at any other circumstances in the way that it's applying the word. We see that happen all the time, usually from people who are very well-meaning, but it causes a lot of death and destruction. So for the next 16 verses now, and I'll read some of these to you, it's like Bildad wasn't even listening. So he's kind of laid out their, their, his premise, so to speak. And then he just switches into this, okay, now I'm just going to restate, I'm just going to restate the company line again and again. And I'm just going to keep on saying it. He's not seeking here to listen or to learn or really even to help or encourage anymore. He's just waiting for his turn on the soapbox. Okay? These guys have said this. I'm going to get up and I'm going to repeat the same thing. It'd kind of be the equivalent of, I copied and pasted this statement because I think it expresses my heart. It's kind of a lazy way to go about it. And this is what Bildad is doing here. So he picks up where Eliphaz leaves off and just launches into this tirade of what happens to this generic, wicked man. He's not pointing at Job. You'll notice that as we go through. He doesn't say, you did this, you did that. He's just saying, in general, wicked people do these sorts of things. Follow along in your Bible if you want, or just listen as I read. I use the New American Standard if you use that. I use that because I think it's a more accurate translation. There are dynamic translations. There are literal translation. A dynamic translation of the Bible is one like, uh, like the NLT. NLT is fantastic. The NLT will take a statement, and it'll make it make sense. So it'll put in a couple words that weren't in the original text in order to make it make sense. But dynamically, in practice, it means much the same thing. And it's a great one for reading. New American Standard takes those and it inserts as few extra words as possible in order to make the word flow. If you read it in the Greek or the Hebrew, it would not flow like a sentence we could talk about. And it adds as little as possible while remaining true to the Greek or to the Hebrew. 
many different versions, but I just want to throw that out. That's why I choose this one, because I, I think it's a good balance. So follow along or just listen. Job 18, verses 5 and 6. Indeed, the light of the wicked goes out, and the spark from his fire does not shine. The light in his tent is darkened, and his lamp goes out above him. So again, the wicked. He's not saying that about Job. He's letting Job kind of infer that to himself. Your light is going to be extinguished. He's talking about death. He's just, in several different ways, he's just saying, hey, death, death awaits you, those of you who sin like you. And he just restates it again and again. Now, next section, Job 18, 7 to 10, he's, he lays this, this uh, picture of a trap and says, you're going to get caught in your own trap. Again, this, this mythical wicked person, his vigorous stride is shortened and his own plan brings him down. For he's thrown into the net by his own feet and he steps on the webbing. A snare seizes him by the heel and a trap snaps shut on him. A noose for him is hidden in the ground and a trap for him on the pathway. Okay, again, these are the things that await the evil person in Job by association then is one of these people. The third one, he, he makes this picture of like Job being a fugitive on the run, being pursued. Job 18 verses 11 to 15. All around, sudden terrors frighten him and harass him at every step. His strength is famished. Disaster is ready at his side. It devours parts of his skin. The firstborn of death devours his limbs. I want to take a second and just remind you, these are things, just generic things that Bildad is throwing out at Job. He's not saying you did this and therefore, he's just saying in general wicked people. That is the work of the spirit of fear. The spirit of fear will do that. You haven't done anything to cause this, but what if? What if you're one of those people? And this is what Bildad is doing. He is totally partnering, partnering with the spirit of fear, causing Job to be afraid. And by being afraid, then maybe he'll come clean. It's got no basis in reality. It might be true of that person, but it's not true about Job. But that doesn't stop him from continuing to spew this stuff. This idea that I just read, the firstborn of death, is, in that culture, the firstborn was like special, set aside. Typically, the highest, the most exalted, the most powerful would be your firstborn. So what he's saying there is the firstborn of death must be a special kind of horrific, a special kind of terrible that awaits you. Verse 14, he's torn from the security of his tent, and they march him before the king of terrors. There we have again, the king of terrors. It's not a specific person he's pointing to. We would say it's the mother of all terrors or something like that, where it's not a specific person, but it's, a, it's again, it's a special kind of agony here. Verse 15, nothing of his dwells in his tent. Brimstone is scattered on his home. Essentially, the only thing Job has left is his home and his wife. And now that's being threatened. Even his home, because remember, Job's outside the town sitting on the trash heap. But we assume that at home, his wife is still at home with what's left of what they have. But now he's saying nothing of his will dwell in his tent. Everything you think you still have is going to go away, and it's going to be laid to ashes. 
That's got to be a special kind of pain when his, his very last treasure, his wife, is being threatened like that. And then lastly, the last point, Job 18, 16 to 20, he paints this picture of an uprooted tree, of a tree that blows over. Now, if you've ever seen a tree that blows over, sometimes if there's one root that's still stuck in the ground, sometimes they can, they can live despite that circumstance. They'll, they'll sprout new branches. I've seen trees laying on their side with new branches going straight up. It's the most amazing thing how they do that, but not if the roots dry up. And this is the picture that Bildad is painting here, Job 18, 16 to 20. His roots are dried below, and his branch withers above. The memory of him perishes from the earth, and he has no name abroad. He's driven from light into darkness and chased from the inhabited world. He has no offspring or descendants among his people, nor any survivor where he resided. Those in the west are appalled at his fate, and those in the east are seized with horror. Again, just these generic statements that could apply to anybody. But Job would hear this and go, okay, he, he's made his living by, by being known. He's, he was a trader, kind of at an important trade junction. So people all over, east, west, far and wide, they all knew who Job was. He was a pretty good guy. And he's being threatened with this idea of like, you know, all this, this, this legacy that you have built up, these people who know you as a good guy, that's going to vanish too. So you won't even have that legacy to carry on. And the idea that you will have no offspring or descendants, that really, this is a patriarchal culture where the idea of your offspring and your family line and your descendants was hugely important to them. This idea of saying, hey, you're going to topple over, dry up and blow away, and even you won't even have any descendants, that had to be a special kind of horrific. Because remember, he'd already lost his kids. So at this, at this point, he had none. The only thing he had to look forward to is maybe I can rebuild in the future. But he's telling him, in, no, wicked people, like we both know you are, this is what happens to them. Just trying to instill that fear. And then the final parting shot that Bildad hits on the way out the door before his mic drop, Job 18, 21. We've got it up here. Certainly these are the dwellings of the wicked, and this is the place of him who does not know God. This final slap in the face where he's insinuating, he's judging in his judgment that built that Job must not know God. Because all these terrible things happen to people who don't know God. You, by definition, are a terrible person. I think we've agreed that you're a terrible person. Therefore, this is what's going to happen to you because you must not even know God. It's a horrible judgment and conclusion for him to make, but it's that spirit of judgment that causes him to apply that to Job when he has no way to know that. So that's it for the scriptures. Let's put some application to this. How does this apply to our world today? And this is something I think the Lord has kind of burdened my heart with because I've seen it in myself. I've seen me go down some of these roads and I've seen very good friends go down some of these roads. So this is why I want to talk about this. If we go back to the beginning of this whole book, again, go, go back to the beginning of Job. We know, we remember that, that, and I laid it out at the beginning here, Satan is accusing God of buying Job's loyalty. Essentially is what it is. And the challenge here that is laid out in the next chapter or two, it pits God's champion, Job, against everything Satan can bring to bear. Satan himself, his demons, anything that he can do to him. First, to physically wear him down, 
and then to go after him mentally, go after his heart, go after his head. So we see that. Now, again, I want to reiterate, there's nowhere in Scripture that says this is what happens, but I think we can see the fingerprints of Satan and his demons all over everything that gets said here. In fact, I want to remind you, let's go back to chapter 4 real quick. I'm going to read this to you. Chapter 4, verses 12 to 16. This is Eliphaz. And Eliphaz, in the context here, is saying, hey, this isn't just my wisdom. I was told this by a spirit. And if a spirit said it, it must be true. But listen to Eliphaz, his own words about how he describes this encounter with this wise spirit. Job 4, verses 12 to 16. Now a word was brought to me secretly, and my ear received a whisper of it, amid disquieting thoughts from visions of the night. When deep sleep falls on people, dread came upon me and trembling and made all my bones shake. Then a spirit passed by my face. The hair of my flesh stood up. Something was standing still, but I could not recognize its appearance. A form was before my eyes. There was silence, and then I heard a voice. Question, does that sound like he's having an encounter with God? Does it sound like an angel of the Lord appearing to him? What do we see with an angel of the Lord? Bright lights, declarations, sneaking around, shadows, trembling, hair standing up. He had an encounter with a demon there. And this demon gave him the words to speak, to beat Job up. And he, of course, fell right in line with that, but he attributed it to an angel of the Lord. Later, we'll see, and we'll get there, but in chapter 26, verse 4, Job asks this direct question. He asks Eliphaz this exact question. To whom have you uttered words, and whose spirit was expressed through you? Who have you been talking to? Even Job knew. Now, I believe that, I believe that Satan, in this case, what we're seeing here is Job, Satan took care of the initial physical attacks on Job, but then uses these various lying demons, religious demons, specialist demons to influence Job's friends so that they do his work. And that tactic is tried and true. We see that today all the time. Those who we let down our guard around can sometimes do the most damage. Now, Satan used at various steps along this way, he used the spirit of pride, the spirit of religion, spirit of fear, spirit of hatred, spirit of judgment, spirit of infirmity, and a religious spirit on each friend. And when I say spirit, that's demon spirit. They are not from the spirit of God. In fact, of all those, of all those heavy hitters of, of the demon world, only lust and witchcraft haven't made an appearance yet. In fact, a pastor that I like listening to sometimes, Chuck Swindoll, he calls these demons collectively, he calls them the spirit of Bildad. And it's those spirits, those demons, the influence of Satan, not Job's friends, not other flawed human beings, not each other, church, listen to me, not each other. We are not the enemy. We are not each other's enemy. It's the influence of demon spirits, and it's Satan who is our enemy. Now, sometimes that manifests in us, 
and we are the one causing the problem. Sometimes a good friend might be misled. The problem comes in when we apply judgment to that situation. And it can be a problem. I felt like the Lord told me this phrase, and I want to just read it the way that he gave it to me. Pride, judgment, and religious demonic spirits have teamed up to create some really bad fruit that I see more and more often in the lives of those who instead should be bearing the fruits of the Spirit. That bad fruit, I'll put a name to it that we see all the time. It's called cynicism. Cynicism is rampant in the world today. You can't turn on the news. You can't read a newspaper. You can't look at a blog without cynicism starting to stick its head in there. And let me define that for you. Just a dictionary description of what cynicism is. A cynic is someone who believes that people are motivated primarily by self-interest and that as a result, no one can be trusted. Cynicism shows contempt for human nature in general and displays a large measure of distrust. That's the definition of cynicism. Here's a cynic by nature. Now, the idea of cynicism goes all the way back, ancient, ancient Greece, uh, where there was a whole sect called cynics. Um, But by nature, a cynic is pessimistic about life in general, self-centered, quick to look for and find fault in others, sarcastic and bitter. Now, sarcasm, I have a healthy dose of sarcasm sometimes myself, but we both know, all of us know, sometimes sarcasm is a little bit more biting than just, haha, that's funny. It's a little bit more pointed, and that's what we're talking about here. Now, this isn't a 21st century problem. This isn't a today-only problem. It goes all the way back to, to the original sin, the fall of Satan. Satan had so much pride that he thought he could literally be like God. Adam and Eve thought, there's no harm in knowing a little bit of what God knows, is there? And, of course, the serpent right there to convince him, no. Why would he not want you to know all these things? The problem is that, that moment with Adam and Eve in the garden was a historically bad development because the ability to even know that there's such a thing as good and evil, the very next step in our nature is we're going to judge what falls into each category. That's good, I'm going to put it over here. That's evil, I'm going to put it over here. In our human nature, we have to put things in piles. We don't like things that are ambiguous and gray area. We generally don't like that. And when we take that gavel of judgment and we wield that pridefully to put things in piles without the knowledge that only God has, that is a slippery slope in itself. And it leads to sin every single time. Eliphaz, Bildad, Zophar, they all had the judgment part down pat. Man, they were good. They were good at judging, but they did not have the Holy Spirit. And without that, they had no chance of applying that judgment without sinning. We have the Holy Spirit through what Jesus Christ did. We have the Holy Spirit and through a generous application of the Holy Spirit to our every thought, our every word, then we have a chance, if done correctly, of knowing the difference. 
when we allow the spirits of pride, judgment, and religion to influence us more than the voice of the Holy Spirit, we will sin. Not we can, it might happen, but we will. And the fruit of that is we'll become cynical and we'll take others down with us. In fact, a healthy dose of cynicism seems to be, in my mind, what separates a practicing Christian from a non-practicing Christian. And I added the word practicing from my message this morning. I said Christian versus non-Christian. But there are plenty of Christians who do not practice the teachings of Jesus. So it matters that you practice it. Someone who professes to be a follower of Christ should choose to love first, search out the best in people, and trust in the Lord above all else. Someone who is not living the teachings of Jesus would see everything in the world through this lens of cynicism and skepticism first before applying, if at all, the teachings of Jesus to it. Here's some practical. I just wrote, I just jotted down eight practical bullet points on how to know if cynicism has kind of taken hold in your life. Number one, you expect everything to go wrong. Number two, you quickly see the worst in people and struggle to even admit the possibility of good. Number three, you are unhappy when good things happen to others, especially those you don't think deserve it. Number four, you think everything in the world is bad and it's getting worse. Number five, you constantly question motives. Number six, the words you speak do not build up and encourage. Number seven, you're bitter. And the last and the most dangerous one of them all, you downplay God's sovereign power. That's the most dangerous because that one, not understanding God's sovereign power, leads us to a place of pride, a place where we think, if I don't fix this, no one's going to fix it. If I don't stand up to that, nobody's going to stand up to that. It leads us into this place, and it quickly leads to despair, hopelessness, bitterness, depression. All of those things come out of that. And it's in that weakened state that Satan will find his opening, and he will attack you every single time. Now, it's not to say we should be ignorant of what happens around us. I'm not saying that. I'm saying just the opposite. Books like Job, books like Job are there so that we can see how Satan can influence our human nature for his purposes and not those of God. And then we can make the decision. Am I seeing myself in some of these things and I need to make a change? That's up to us and the Holy Spirit. But we do know this, through Jesus Christ, we are no longer slaves to that fallen nature. Thank you, Lord, we're not. Romans 6.6, 6, I want to share this with you. Paul said this, knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him in order that our body of sin might be done away with so that we would no longer be slaves to sin. Eliphaz, Bildad, Zophar, Elihu that we'll meet later, Job, they didn't have the Holy Spirit. And so they just did the best that they could and we see the results of this. But, we know with us, if you're a follower of Christ, the old self, susceptible to, to sin, attacks from the enemy, that self was crucified on the cross at Calvary. 
And we're free to live in faith and expectancy and given everything that we need to do that. But the idea of cynicism, it's a ball and chain. And you, whatever term you want to use, it's, it's concrete shoes. It's, it's a ball and chain around your ankle that keeps us from walking in that freedom to exercise our faith. Anybody know George Bernard Shaw? George Bernard Shaw, I think he was probably schizophrenic, and I don't say that lightly, but one day he would be an atheist. The next day he was an agnostic. The next day he was kind of sort of religious. He bounced around back and forth, but he said this about cynicism. I want to show it to you. The power of accurate observation is commonly called cynicism by those who have not got it. You guys are good. I laid a trap for you there. Before you look at that and go, yeah, that's how I feel. People just don't see what I see. That's a prideful way to look at life. And if you don't have the Holy Spirit, that might be true. That statement might be true. A Christian, though, has available the gift of discernment through the Holy Spirit. And if we apply that to situations, it's not... I can discern, I can see things other people can't see. You can discern things if you ask the Holy Spirit to show you. And there's a difference. Don't fall into statements like that in a prideful way, thinking somehow you can see things that other can't see. That is an absolutely prideful statement. And unfortunately, I do it all the time too. Why can't people see this? But with the Holy Spirit as our guide, we're able to apply the truth. And really only then are we able to apply the truth. I want to share the last scripture and then we'll pray. Ephesians chapter 4, verses 29 to 32. Paul says this, Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building, for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Get rid of all bitterness, rage, and anger, brawling and slander, along with every form of malice. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ God forgave you. Let's pray. Father, we thank you, Lord God, that you gave us your word. Your word is both everlasting and unchanging and yet alive and speaking to us every day and how we apply it to our lives. So, Father, show us in this word, in this message, in this chapter, and in our lives, God, show us how to apply what we have heard from you to our lives. Are there things we need to repent of? God, show us that. Are there things we need to praise you for? God, show us that. Lord, let us our, keep our eyes on hope and on what Jesus did for us at the cross. Not through anything that we have done or anything we could possibly do to change the outcomes of life, but thankful to you and praising you that everything we have is only possible because of you. Father, we thank you. Help us to see others the way you see them. Help us to see the schemes of the enemy, the works of the devil, the destroyer, the accuser, the liar. Help us to see those things, not only in others, but mostly in us. Help us to see when we are 
partnering with a lying spirit, a religious spirit, a prideful spirit. Help us to know immediately when we see something that doesn't belong there. The only spirit we want to partner with is you and the Holy Spirit of God. Let that manifest in our lives so there's no room for anything else. Father, we love you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Hey, we're going to, uh, we're going to take communion together now. Um, while we do that, if you're here in-house and you want to take communion with us, on the table in the back, we have little single-serve cups. If you're at home, grab whatever supplies you would like, and let's do that together. While we do that, we have prayer team here, and they'll be stationed in the back. If you need prayer for anything, feel free to see one of them. They'll have a lanyard on. If you're online, you can respond in the chat boards or shoot us an email if it's later and the chat boards aren't open, info at discovercommunity.church, or you can use prayer at discovercommunity.church. We will pray for you. It's so easy to fall into these times where we are maybe not hearing or thinking right, and we don't see it. And we need someone to come alongside us and pray with us to help us see those places where maybe maybe we're being deceived a little bit. And we do that through the Holy Spirit given freely through Jesus Christ and his sacrifice on the cross. So the body represents that, the broken body of Jesus on the cross, broken to take the punishment that we all deserve, but done in our place. Take the body. And it's through the blood of Christ that blood of the new covenant that Jesus calls it that says we don't have to offer sacrifice we don't have to hope that we're doing all the right things at the right time in order to gain God's favor we have God's favor because of the blood take the blood Lord we thank you this day and every day we lift our lives up to you have your way Have your way to you be the glory. Amen. Thank you, guys.